0: Good morning. So glad to see you and back with us again as we're going to go back into Colossians today. And so if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Colossians chapter one, just the verses that we read just a few moments ago. But uh, as we begin this morning, I want you to just think about uh, what you want out of life. What is your deepest hearts, desires, the things you're looking for? The things you think about, uh, we often kind of frame that in different ways. We kind of dance around the subject sometimes, the very deepest desires of our hearts. But we ask those questions in different ways. We actually ask them to children. A lot of times we say things like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right, And and what we really mean a lot of times behind that is, is what do you want to do vocationally? But also, when you ask a child that, you're asking kind of what their heart wants to do. And you get great answers when you ask kids, by the way. You get things like, I want to be an astronaut who hunts vampires at night, right? Uh, Joanna, my wife, is a pediatrician, and so she writes down things that kids tell her when she asks that. And she's got this whole list of incredible things that they want to do. And so you hear kind of the heart behind what they're seeking and what they want. But we talk about that and we ask those questions. Maybe what do you want to do or, or what do you enjoy or what are your passions in life and different things. And we say it in different ways. And uh, sometimes in our culture, uh, historically, it's been this idea kind of the American dream, I want to grow up and get married and have a job and have 2.2 kids and a picket fence and a dog and and that kind of becomes a thing. Today, that's shifting a little bit when you read different polls and different stuff. It has more to do with I want freedom and happiness and I don't want to be bound to anything and I want to be able to do what I want to do and, and different things, but we see that in different ways. And so we get to the beginning of a new year as we are now just right at the beginning of 2015 and sometimes we begin to think about Uh, uh, resolutions and what we want to do this year and what we want to see and what we want to see happen. And so uh, we begin to think sometimes in those ways or maybe what we missed out on last year and what do I want to accomplish and what are my dreams and different things like that. And so I mention all that. I start that way this morning because we're going to go back into Colossians chapter one this morning and we're going to look at some incredible, huge truths of who Jesus Christ is And what he's come to do. And we're going to see this together. And as we do. I think as you look at this passage. And if we rightly understand this passage. And what God says to us. That there's an incredible invitation here. For a life that goes beyond anything that we can imagine or dream up. And so I want you to think a little bit. As we walk through what it tells us about Jesus. And what it says here. That there's an invitation here. There's an invitation to something wonderful and marvelous. And so I want you to kind of think of it that way. And so this morning, we're going to look at Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter one, starting uh, about verse 15 to 23. And we may go back and hit on a few verses that we looked at last week. Uh, but before we do, let's pray together and then we'll look at kind of how we're going to how we're going to tackle those verses together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is Living and it is active, that it is life giving, that you create and you recreate through your word, and we thank you for that. We pray that as we open it today, that we would take seriously what you've told us, that we would be reminded that your word is eternal and that none of your words return void. And so we pray that we would come to it in that way. I pray that your spirit would move in this place, that you would lead and you would guide and you would teach us. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, because without you doing so, we are hopelessly lost. And so we need you to lead and guide and teach us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so this is the way I want us to look at it as we begin, as we work through these verses today. First and foremost is we're going to look at verses 15 to 20, and you're going to see probably the biggest view of who Jesus is in the Bible, kind of the highest of the high, the fullest of, of who he is and so as we look at that just we're going to ask the question who is jesus what does the bible tell us right here in these few verses about who jesus is and then secondly as we look at that and think about it in light of that what does that mean for us if we really get what this is teaching us about who jesus is what does that mean for us and i think there's three things one that there is an expectation there is an invitation and there's a promise When we understand who Jesus is, what that means for us is there's an expectation, an invitation, and a promise. And so let's just start with what this passage tells us and what the picture looks like of who Jesus is. And let me remind you, we started last week. We talked about how and why we work through books of the Bible. And so we started Colossians 1 last week, and we're going to work our way straight through. And so it's important to at least uh, be reminded of the context, why this letter is written, what's going on. And so this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae. It's a young church, and they're they're doing well. He says, I've heard what you're doing, and you love each other, and you've put your faith in Christ. But then he says there's also some issues that are coming up. That's the kind of context underneath. There's some bad teaching that has crept into the church. And so Paul writes to address those things and correct some of those things and encourage them in different ways. And one of the bad teachings that kind of fleshes its way out that you see as we work through the book is you're seeing that there's, a, there's this idea that Jesus isn't fully God, that he's maybe just a spirit or an angel, and they're worshiping angels and they're equating Jesus to different spirits. And so they have a view that's kind of off on what Scripture teaches about who Jesus is. And so that's kind of some of the undercurrents. And some of it is this idea of a dualism of body and and spirit, and some of the, the earthly, fleshly body things are bad and, and wrong, and the flesh is good, and so we want to go, I'm mean, sorry, the spirit is good, and so we want to be all about spiritual things, but not these other things. Well, part of that comes from a Greek philosophy. If you know anything about history, and I'm no history buff, but uh, you go back and Alexander the Great conquered the world, and he did his Hellenization. He wanted everybody to speak his language and to think the way the Greeks thought, And part of that that was in the culture was that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good and you want to get away from this body and this earth and a whole lot of things that are kind of wrapped up in what's happening there. And so I say that as just way kind of introduction, what Paul's addressing and some of the things he's getting to. Those are some of the undercurrents that are there. And you say, well, that's great and that helps us culturally to think about what they're thinking about. But I want to just say, I think it's very important for us to think about too. Sometimes in the modern today, the Christian church, we can fall into this thinking that we put our faith in Jesus, he saves our soul, and then we just wait this out until we get to heaven. And we can downplay God's coming to redeem his creation and the new heavens and the new earth and all he's going to do. And we end up kind of overemphasizing this one part to the detriment of the other. And so I want us to think what Paul says here because it's just as vital and important for us today as it was for his original audience. And so look with me. Let's go back to about verse 13, where we were last week, and look down 13 to about verse 17, what he says. And so he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He, God the Father, has delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and And the forgiveness of sins. And then he says he. And he goes on to describe Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. And for by him all things were created in heaven. And on earth visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And so here Paul's writing and really taking on head on this idea that Jesus is a spirit or he's not fully God or he's not any of these things. And he comes right at it with this incredible description of who Jesus is. He gives you the highest of the high of Christology. That is a study of who Christ is. And we see in the Bible, this is the highest there is that list. Just look at the way he describes Jesus. He says he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This idea of the image of God. That is, when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. Jesus is the image of God. He's equating Jesus absolutely with God and saying they're one and the same. And so this idea that was floating around in the church that Jesus was less than or he was just partially, Paul goes right at it and says, no, he's completely and totally God. Now, when we read this, sometimes culturally we can miss some of the things that are said by the language that's used because look at the very next thing there in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, but then it says he's the firstborn of all creation. And that can seem kind of confusing, does it not? I mean, we just said that he's not created, he's not less than God, he is God, but then it says he's the firstborn of all creation and it makes it sound like he's part of creation. He was just the first thing in creation and that can be kind of confusing when you read that. You read it and you go, well, wait a second, what's that saying or how does that go together? But I want to make sure that we get what this says. And I want to, again, point you to why this is important even today. Uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, the the Mormon church would put Jesus and say that he is less than God. He's not fully God. He's a created being. Different uh, religions will take and run with that. And so here... Uh, he's not saying that and it's important that we see what he is saying when it says firstborn you've got to remember culturally what that means the firstborn would inherit all things of his father firstborn a lot of times was used synonymously as being uh the head of or over all things supreme over and so that's the way paul is talking about it here Depending on what translation you have, which Bible you're reading, I believe, uh, don't quote me, but I believe the NIV actually says that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. Now it says firstborn of creation literally, but they've kind of gone ahead and tried to clarify that for you because that's really what it's saying. When Paul uses the idea of firstborn, he's talking about him being supreme or the head over the one that's above all things. Another way to say it is that he is the highest rank. And so he's over all creation. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying he's the first created thing. He's saying that he is supreme over all creation. And so it's an important distinction to make because that can be confusing. Because you're going, he's writing to address the problem here of equating Jesus to being less than God. And that could be confusing there. But even if you don't know culturally what he's talking about when he says firstborn, the context actually bears out for us who Jesus is. Because look at what he says in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so he really clarifies himself In verse 16, even if you're not sure what he's talking about when he says firstborn of creation. Because he says everything that was made, whether in the heavens, the earth, invisible, visible, was made by Jesus. He is the creator of all. And so he clarifies that. And he even goes on to say whether uh, dominions or rulers or thrones are visible and invisible. Right, This idea of worshiping angels and those things that were creeping into the church. He takes that head on and says, no, 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 Jesus created every bit of it. He is the creator of all. And so he's going straight at that to show you clearly that Jesus is over all those. He's over all things. He's the creator of all things. And then verse 17, he even says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only is the the creator that speaks all things into existence, not only is everything made through him and by him, he holds all things together. He sustains the creation. That's a pretty high view of who Jesus is. He goes way up for what he's saying and what he's addressing. And so he says he sustains and he holds it all together. There's a really cool... uh, picture within our cell structure and i've heard different people use this analogy maybe you've heard it before it's not a proof that jesus holds all things together but it's pretty cool when you think about it there's a thing in our cells and in our body that's called laminin have you ever heard of this i didn't until i heard this illustration and saw this but laminin is uh i'll get it right it's the cell adhesion molecules that literally hold our cells together Without them, our cells would not hold together, and we'd literally fall apart. We'd we'd cease to be. And so, laminin holds us together in the most literal sense possible. And when you look at this under a microscope and you see the cell structure, molecular structure of what it looks like, it's really cool because it looks exactly like a cross. Exactly, it it forms a cross in the way it looks. And it's kind of cool when you put it together with Colossians one and you start to see it's a good illustration that it tells us Jesus literally holds creation together. And here's this thing, and, and even in a molecular structure, there's this picture of a cross holding us together. And so it's kind of a cool, again, that doesn't say, it doesn't prove it, but it's a neat illustration that shows us what Christ does, that he's literally holding us together. And so when we consider who he is, the first thing I want to say and want us to see clearly is that he is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. Nothing was made without him, and all things hold together because of him. He is the creator, and he is the sustainer. But then look at what it says in verses 18 to 20. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And what I want us to see and what I want us to think about as we look at those verses when it says he's the firstborn of the dead. Again, there's that word firstborn, same idea, same thinking. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, right? He has been firstborn of the dead. He comes back. It doesn't mean he was the first person to be resurrected because Jesus himself resurrected Lazarus and, and the young girl. You know, he does that a couple different times, but it means firstborn in that he is over. He is over and supreme over it. And so what, what Paul begins to describe here as he goes into verses 18 to 20 is that Jesus is not only uh, the creator and the sustainer of all things, He is the recreator. He is the redeemer of all things. That He came and dwelled bodily, fully God and fully man together to condemn sin in the flesh that He could be raised from the dead and He could recreate and redeem our sinful nature. Right? So when you look through big picture real quickly, just grounding that, we were made in God's image, we were made in His likeness, we were made to be in relationship with Him. We walked away from Him, we sinned, we ignored Him in the world He created. And so God created His good creation, but then in our sin, uh, sin enters and it becomes broken down in different ways. Uh, things begin to be out of whack, we begin to become self-centered instead of God-centered. And so what God does is He says, I'm going to enter in and fix that problem. I'm going to come and redeem my creation. And so Jesus is not just creator and sustainer and then steps back and just lets it go. He's creator and sustainer, but He's also recreator or redeemer. He's both. And He comes and enters in and becomes part, and He comes to fix the issues that are there because of our sin. And so we see him as creator and redeemer and sustainer. And so look at what he says there in verses 21 and 22. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And now he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so he gets this picture of he's going to come and redeem all. He's going to redeem his good creation. He shows us that he cares about all his creation. He's not going to just pluck our souls out. He says, I'm going to come and redeem my creation. And he kind of pulls those two sides together, the physical world and the spiritual world. I care about all of it. It's all my good creation. And so he's going to come in and do that and begin to bring all of it back together. And so not only does he hold all things together, As we sin and we rebel and we begin to walk away, He's going to bring all things back together. He's going to redeem and recreate. And He's both. He's both sides of that. And so sometimes it helps me to think through sin entering the world and the effects that sin has on the world. Uh, sometimes I think of it as in in my ignorance and plants. and Somebody can come up and tell me later the best example of this. But like when ivy gets all over the trees, you ever see that on the highway where they just cover the trees and all you can see is, you can't see the trees anymore? They're everywhere and that stuff gets into everything. In a way, that's kind of what sin is like. Sin entered into the world and it got into everything. And it's covered everything. And so God looks at his creation and here it is that sin has marred his good creation. He says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix it. And so as Jesus enters in, in his body fully to dwell and to condemn sin in the flesh, he comes and lives the life we couldn't live and he does it perfectly and then he lays down his life as our sacrifice and he kills sin. He's the firstborn of the dead. The wages of sin is death and Jesus reverses that through what he does. So he is over death. He is the firstborn of the dead. And it's like those, the uh, ivy that's all over everything. It's like he comes in and he cuts the root off. And it's, no, it's still there and we still feel the effects and we still see it, but it's no longer growing. He's killed it. He's shown that he's over it. And so the picture that we have here when we say, well, who is Jesus? He is the creator and the sustainer and the recreator, the redeemer. He's both. He does both. He holds it together, but then he comes to fix the issues that are there. And so the second part I want us to think about is what does that mean for us when we really understand that? When we see that this is who Jesus is, the fullness of who he is and what he's done, what does that mean for us? And so I said at the beginning, there's an expectation, there's an invitation, and there's a promise. First of all, the expectation start there. Look at what it says in verse 18. And he is the head of, Of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I say this almost every week, but let's make sure we're clear on it. The church is you, right? The body of Christ is people that are redeemed, that have put their faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit now indwells. The church is you, it's people. So I say at the beginning, welcome to the gathering of the church of the apostle. You didn't come to church. You are the church and we gathered here together today. And so the church is people, it's us, and he says he is the head of the body, the church, he is our head. That means he is the one that's in control, he is the one that is over all things, he is preeminent in everything we do, Jesus is our head. He's our our leader, our king, all the things that you want to assign, all the ways you want to see it. And so the expectation is if you see who Jesus is as creator, sustainer, recreator, redeemer, all those things, you don't make Jesus your personal assistant. He is your Lord and your King and the expectation is complete obedience to Him and nothing else makes sense if this is who Jesus is. There's no other way to look at it. If Jesus literally holds all things together created all things, sustains all things, is now redeeming all things, even in our rebellion. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's no other response than to say, my Lord and my God, anything you can ask of me is yours. Uh, The wonderful cross, we sing that hymn sometimes. If I would have had the foresight, if I would have been done with my sermon, we would have sang it right after this, but I blew it, so that's, that's my fault. But in that song it says, We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. If this is who Jesus is, it demands of us that he is our king. It demands of us what we talk about all the time in discipleship. Discipleship is becoming completely obedient to Jesus in every area of our life. If this is who Jesus is, then there's nothing else that makes sense. If he literally holds everything together, he knows all, he is all, then he should be the one that uh, uh, determines our every step. It makes me think of C.S. Lewis's uh, very famous now argument that Jesus is lunatic, he's liar, or he's Lord, if you've ever heard this before. And what C.S. Lewis says is the claims that Jesus made and the things that he said. He equates himself with God. He calls himself God. He says that he has been eternal and always existent. All the things that Jesus does and said. You only have three options. He's either stark, raving, mad, and you should run the other way because he's as crazy as can be because he thinks he's God. Or he's a swindler. And a liar. He knows he's not God, but he's trying to dupe you into it and, and gain from your ignorance. Or he's who he says he is, which means he's Lord, and the only thing you can do is follow him. There's no in between. And so when you really think about it and you put it in those terms, the idea of being lukewarm for Jesus, oh, I'll give you a little bit of my time. When I can squeeze it in, maybe I'll listen to what you tell me, makes no sense. That's absolute insanity if Jesus is who he says he is and what scripture tells us here. And so the expectation is that we would follow him completely and totally, fully obedient to him. And let me just remind you, that's a wonderful thing. Sometimes we go, man, I want my freedom and I want to do what I want and I don't want anyone telling me anything. But if Jesus knows all things, he made it all, he holds it all together, wouldn't you want him kind of walking with you, leading and guiding you? I think of it as if you've ever been to a foreign country uh, or maybe just even a big city you haven't been to before, it can be really scary. You don't know where you're going and you don't know. I say foreign country to me is more so because I don't speak the language and you walk in and then you really don't know where you're going and you can't even ask anybody because you're not sure. Uh, I went to Greece years ago and then the alphabet's different. You can't even read the words. You really don't know what's going on. And I tried to go to ancient Corinth actually to see where the Apostle Paul lived. And I couldn't, I couldn't get there. I was on the wrong bus and I, they put me out on the highway. I was walking on the highway because they said, no, 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 get off and, and uh, all this kind of things. And I was really like, I'm never going to get there. I mean, I remember sitting in the town not even knowing where I am. And I met a guy who spoke English. And he goes, oh, I've been to ancient Corinth like 10 times. I'm going there today. I'll take you. I went, oh, thank you, God. Right? It was such a relief to have somebody come alongside and say, yeah, 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 I'll show you. I've been here. I know what that's like. That's what it's like walking with Jesus. The creator and sustainer of all things. That holds all things together. That knows all things. What a blessing to be obedient to Jesus. And so that's the first part. The expectation. Secondly, there's an invitation though. Read again verse 18 and following what he says there. He is the head of the, of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has has done the work. He has defeated sin and death and he's done it. And so now he invites us as his church, as he begins to indwell us and be in us to proclaim what he's done, to begin to tell what he's done as him as our head we are his body the church and we get to make much of what Christ has already done right remember last week we talked about what it means to be in Christ if you're here with us last week and you see it in verses 12 to 14 right he says very clearly that the father has qualified you has qualified you he's already done it He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? Through redemption, through forgiveness of sins, by what Jesus has done, we are already transferred into his kingdom. I want to make sure that we understand this. Jesus Christ is reigning right now. His kingdom has come. He's done the work. He's already done it. And you're already there. You're in his kingdom. If you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is now in you. Go back to my example before. The ivy has covered everything, sin overall. Christ comes and cuts off the root, and it's no longer growing. Sin and death has been defeated. Now, our job is we get this invitation to begin to pull off some of those branches and begin to show what's behind it. We get to proclaim the universal reign of Jesus because he is reigning right now. And he invites us in as his body with him as our head, That is our job as the church is to alert the world of the universal reign of Jesus. Now, we're not going to bring it fully in our efforts and what we do. That will only completely ever come when Christ returns. But he invites us in to be part of a learning people to that. And so we get this invitation to be part of revealing his redemption to all things. I said at the beginning you know What do you want out of life and what do you want to do? I'm just going to tell you that the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of this world has come and he's recreated and he's redeeming and he's working on that and then he invites you to be part of it and alert people to what he's done. There is no greater calling. There is no greater adventure. There is nothing greater that you can do than be a part of what God has already done by you just proclaiming to the world who he is. And we get to be part of that. There's an invitation to come in and be part of that and begin to, to point people to what Christ has done. It's the very heart of disciples making disciples. We're seeking to be obedient to Jesus in every area of our life and we're seeking to help other people do the same because He's already done it. Michael Frost is a pastor in Australia. And he's one of my favorites. He's written a bunch of books and I've heard him speak several times. But he often talks about this idea of alerting people to the universal reign of Christ. And he said, "Have you ever gone to the movies and you see a really great trailer... Right? They have the, the previews before you watch the movie and you see the trailer. And he said you watch the movie. Whatever kind of movie you like, if you're a big action movie, you go and you see and there's this incredible uh, explosions and things going on and you see it. And what happens when you get to the, There's a really great trailer. You get to the end and you go, oh, I want to see that. Right? I am seeing that movie. I can't wait to see that one. Right? That is the invitation that we have in Christ to alert people to who Jesus is and what He's done, to give little uh, foretastes of the kingdom that is going to be fully revealed when Jesus gets here. And so we get the opportunity through His Spirit, through Christ working in us, to begin to alert people to the reality that's coming. You get to be a trailer. A trailer to the kingdom. What better adventure to undertake than that? To begin to point to who God is and what He's going to do. And so you have this expectation, you have this invitation. And then lastly, we're going to end here. You have a promise here that he tells you. Look at verses 21 and 22, really in 23. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right. Remember what we said last week in Christ. You have been qualified. You have been transferred. You have been delivered. That's already done through what Jesus has done for you. And so the promise that he gives you is he's going to present you holy and blameless before the Father. We can read those words and totally miss that. He's going to present you holy and blameless before the Father. Spotless, perfect in every way before the Father. Now you can read verse 23 as you read through that. And it says, if indeed you continue. And then it starts to talk about that. And and we can mix that up and say, well, it's partly our works and what we do. And it's about us. But look at what he says. Look at what he tells you if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Do you understand what he's saying? Your part is to continue to put your faith in Jesus and what he's done and nothing else. Continue in the hope of the gospel. Continue to have a confident assurance in what is to come because of what Jesus has done for you and nothing else. Your part, what you do is you cling in faith to Jesus and that's it. And if you do, and you continue to cling in faith, and you say, it's not me, it's Christ, and what he's done, he is going to present you holy and blameless before the Father. And I want you just to think about what that means. Each week, every week, I'm talking for myself, you can agree or disagree, I make all kinds of mistakes. I mean to say good things, and sometimes I say stupid things, and sometimes I just say really dumb things and sometimes I lose my temper and I do and then I walk off and my, the spirit convicts me and I go man I blew that I need to apologize to that person and I need to clarify with that person because I didn't do that very well and I forgot and I go through all these things every, every day every week of my life is that and then I read that Jesus is going to present me holy and blameless before the Father wow what is that going to be like no regrets, no I blew that, perfect and blameless before the Father because of what Jesus does. And I think then verses 15 to 20, when you see who Jesus is, when you know that as he presents you, you're going to see him fully. Oh, my creator and my sustainer, my redeemer, my recreator, I'm going to see all of it perfectly. No regrets, none of those things that plague us. And he says, I'm going to do that. And so there is a promise that is above all. And so when we know that, we talked about that last week, that gives us a hope, an assurance in what is to come. We can rest in that. And so then it frees us to risk big. We can begin to follow Christ in all things. I want to make much of Him in every way. I want to continue to point people to who He is because of this is what He's done and what He's going to do. And so what a wonderful picture of our Savior and what He's done for us and what He's going to complete in us. And so it leads us, it should lead us, just to worship Him and to thank Him. And so let's pray as we do. Lord, we thank You. We do thank You for the beautiful picture of who You are and what You've done. I pray. Uh, I just thank You. I thank You for the, Your patience with us. I thank You for the way that You pursue us, the way that You love us that you hold all things together, but yet in our rebellion and our sin that you didn't leave us in that, but you have sought us and you have done and you promise us that you're going to complete the work that you have begun. And we thank you. I thank you. I pray that we would live hearts of overflow praising what you've done and who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.